Determination. I'm Carrie Gillen. And I'm Megan Figueroa. And what an episode, Carrie. Yes, it's a good one. A uh, crossover that has been talked about on Twitter for a while. Yes, people have been asking for this for our, uh, a long time. <laughs> a long time. A long time. And uh, it's it's happened. It's happening. It finally, it finally happened. Yeah. We got to talk about all kinds of things, language, and podcast related. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a little uh, row at the end because uh, we recorded it like, what, 24 hours after? <laughs> yeah. All that it was shit. the next so- day. Yeah. Yeah. And before we get to that, we're going to just talk a little bit about something that's happening in Canada because why not? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're there. <laughs> yeah, I'm here. It's language related. And also uh, one of our listeners, Diego Diaz, sent it to us. So oh, thank you. Yay. There's a bilingualism bonus for federal employees. Okay. Like financial bonus. Yeah. Okay. So if you speak both English and French, the you know two official languages of Canada, uh, you get an extra $800 a year, which isn't really all that much, but whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, so there is now this push to extend it to people who speak an indigenous language and either English or French. Yeah. <laughs> right. But because only English and French are the official languages... They're not going to extend it to speakers of indigenous languages. I mean, it's one of those pieces of information that I want to say makes me speechless, but only because I'm like, not surprised. And so it's like, I don't know what to say besides this is so expected. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's so, so frustrating. If you know anything about the history of Canada, like the, the bilingualism piece, I mean, Canada has so, sort of sort of been bilingual the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a way to make peace because the British won this big battle between the British and the French, and you know, to to keep the peace, they made French sort of like acceptable and also the Catholicism acceptable. But yeah, so like there's always been this, this you know, existing as part of Canada's history. It's never been perfect or anything. But anyway, uh, and then became actually official in the 60s, I think. So there's like historical reasons for it. And, you know, and there it is. But as part of the truth and reconciliation process, like... Right we should be doing more for indigenous people and indigenous languages. And so this did come up from, you know, the union, the public service Alliance of Canada, uh, they proposed creating an indigenous language allowance. So yeah, if you use the language in the course of your work, you should be able to be compensated in some way, get this bonus. So there's apparently 500 or nearly 500 federal employees who speak an indigenous language on the job. And so this is discriminatory. Yeah. When you're getting an allowance for one second language, but not another. Yeah. I actually think that could be argued in court in the U.S. I know this is not the U.S., but I'm like, this actually might be a case in the U.S. And it's hard to make cases like this in the U.S. Yeah, but there's no official language. So it's just a different situation. 
It is. It is. But like favoring one language over the other or that kind of it's it, it violates equal protection under the law and all this. I think there could be a case. But there's no protection for language. There's no protection for language in the US. You would you would yes, you would use it as like national origin or whatever. Like it's all so tricky. Um people have gotten around it. It just seems like this is really really overt. Of a case. Yeah, it's not. It's it's bad. And like I don't know if you if you heard about it. Our new governor general is bilingual Inuit English. And people were upset that she wasn't also a French speaker. That's what they're upset about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because again, in order to keep the peace, we've always had to have this like at the at the top levels of the federal government some semblance of like French and English uh, co-equality. Oh my goodness. And the, the French are definitely the minority. And so, like, if, if, if it was like, I feel like if it was a French Inuit bilingual speaker, there'd still be people who'd be upset, but it would feel slightly less fraught because I, the English is like so dominant. I'd be like, I, I don't know. <laughs> so right. French feels delicate and, and under threat. And so part of me understands, but part of me is also like, she's still bilingual, but should still count. Right. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a it's a, it's gone. Like there's no chance, right? They were just like, no. well, they said no. Now, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like you can always try again. Yeah. Right. It's not like you just. It's once they say no, it's over. It's, it's just oh a policy. God. No, you're right. <laughs> this is like just. It's. I'm gonna cry. This is like the story of progress, right? It's like people say no, nah, and you're like, no, nah, I'm gonna try more. Right. <laughs> just a little harder I'll push next time. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So people are upset and uh, and you know there's an an NDP uh New Democratic Party member of parliament for Nunavut, Lori Idlaut. She speaks uh, Inuktitut which is one of the many varieties of Inuit uh, and she's she's going to continue to try to persuade the treasury board to change this so, we'll, yeah. you know, we can all just keep pushing on it. Yeah. Uh, we de- we definitely, not just Canada, but Canada definitely needs to do a def- better job at protecting uh, Indigenous people and their languages. So Yeah. I remain ho- ever hopeful. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I feel like this is like, uh, they, this was just brought up fairly recently. Yeah. As a thing that yeah. could happen. And... Even though it's a no right now, right? I don't feel like it's a no forever, I, and I think this is one of those things that can easily be moved, especially since the amount is so small. Like they're even like, talking about increasing it to fifteen hundred dollars a year, but like that's such a tiny drop in the bucket. It even is. though Canada has a much smaller budget than the United States, it's still anyway because it's such a small amount. I feel like it's they'll be easier to convince. You might as well just do it. It's a yeah. small thing, a small little thing you can do yeah. to be like, oh, yeah, truth and reconciliation really does matter. Right. <laughs> yeah, you've been talking about it. Yeah. I want to see that you mean it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this would be one one thing. It would not be... A, it's a, so I mean, tiny. so many more things. <laughs> it is a tiny, tiny thing, but it would still matter. And so I... But you said 500, so, right? 500 employees that this would affect? Yeah, like just under 500, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, do it. Do it, Canada. <laughs> anyway, I hope everyone enjoys this episode. I think it's a fun one. <laughs> yes, it's so much fun. So today 
Today we're very excited to have Sarah Marshall on, who is a writer, podcaster, and media critic focused on setting straight our collective memory, or at least getting to the bottom of why we believe and in turn define ourselves by popular narrative and myth. Why is the maligned woman a staple of our news media? <laughs> why do we believe the serial killers are brilliant? How do we keep stumbling into all these moral panics? These are some of the questions that propel Sarah forward. She's the host of the popular modern history podcast, You're Wrong About, which has been highlighted in The New Yorker, The Guardian, and Time magazine. She's also the co-host of the Feelings podcast about movies, You Are Good, with Alex Steed, which has been praised by The Verge and The Bellow Collective. Her writing has appeared in The Believer, BuzzFeed, and the true crime collection, Unspeakable Acts. She loves Portland, Oregon, Philly, and Las Vegas in that order, and it has been rumored that she's writing a book about the satanic panic. <laughs> so welcome. Hi. Yes, thanks for being here. I think you started that rumor, I right? I gotta get a yeah. shorter bio. That's a lot of information. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Listen, if I had all that to say about myself, I'd shut it from the mountains. <laughs> Actually, I wouldn't. I'd be very uncomfortable with it. <laughs> But it would be fun to, to shout it from a mountain. I should go literally shout something from a mountain. I should, like, go climb, like, do a little hike on Mount Hood mm. and then be like, yes, I was in Vanity Fair. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Please do. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that a lot of us could do some shouting off mountains right now and that may be very cathartic yep. yeah good for, <laughs> for anybody us. like something you're proud of something you're angry about just anything yeah yes yeah absolutely and can i just say before we get really into it congratulations on your beautiful vocal fry thank you <laughs> thank you i don't think that uh we say that to each other no. <laughs> that's beautiful i'm so excited to be in this beautiful and destigmatizing environment with you both <laughs> So speaking of destigmatizing, one of the things that you always defend is bimbos. And so yes. why? Why is it important for you to defend <sighs> bimbos? Because bimbos need love. Bimbos are human. Bimbos have always been with us, however we define them. I think there's two things that made me feel like bimbos were clearly very important. One was that 1987, I believe, was branded the year of the bimbo. Because of Fawn Hall, who was tangential to the Iran-Contra scandal, Jessica Hahn, who alleged that Jim Baker had raped her in a horrifying fashion and yet was remembered publicly for having a tryst, quote-unquote, and Donna Rice, who we have the photo of with Gary Hart that right. helped torpedo his campaign for president thus allowing George W. Bush to egg in. And, <laughs> and so in each of these stories, it was like a like hot young woman with like big hair and cute sort of business attire was being seen as like the mastermind of these three stories, each of which would only involve them tangentially and was primarily about a powerful man like utterly and elaborately undermining himself mm -hmm. and also America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then also, I believe George Stephanopoulos called needing to quash stories about Clinton and women when he was running for president initially called it not bimbo patrol, but like something like that. It had the word bimbo in it. 
And I remember reading all this stuff and I was like, apparently people in the 80s and 90s talked like they were in a strip club owned by Jack Ruby. But (laughs) (laughs) I vaguely remember the 80s and I will say, yes, that's what what it was like. (laughs) Well, that explains a lot. And and everyone was jazzercising the entire time. And so Mm. that made me realize that like our country (laughs) has blamed bimbos that like bimbos are the sort of witches of the 80s and 90s as as well as actual witches of course and i just think bimbos (laughs) are so important and there's also this this implication in works by men that like it's just sort of intrinsically immoral to like i don't know wear stretch pants and a lot of eyeshadow and that's just completely insane so that's (laughs) why (laughs) i'm trying to think of who i think of like who was the woman that was a bimbo in like the media when I was coming up? And I'm thinking Anna Nicole Smith. Mm-hmm. Like that would be right. Like yeah. in, in in your estimation, someone who is thought of as a bimbo. Oh yeah, and she was like was she was consistently in the media for like I don't know, like 15 years. And yeah, she looked like Jane Mansfield. I need who is that? <laughs> she was. Like a wonderful B movie star of the fifties, yeah. Oh yeah, and she just she looks exactly like just, her, like along the Jessica Rabbit blueprint, right? Right? Yeah. Right. Oh, Jessica Rabbit's. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> she's a yeah, that whole th- yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of OG Bimbo. Is that Betty Boop too? I would say can you so. be with dark hair? Oh, bimbo? yes. Of course you can. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. I mean, look at James Bond movies, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's okay. always like I was watching, I was on a plane recently and I was like, I'm going to watch Goldeneye. And I never saw that one when I was a tween and I was having my James Bond phase. And I was like, this explains so much about millennial men, a great many of whom I now believe were like shaped sexually by the Famke Jansen character who's like, the Soviet, like, she kills with sex. Yes, I uh-huh. remember. Who could forget? I don't remember almost anything from any of those movies, because they're so forgettable to me. But yes, that's something I will never forget. <laughs> What's a topic where I feel like I was wrong about? Because, uh, you know, thinking about talking oh, so to so many you. things. So many, but I was thinking about Monica Lewinsky, mm. and she too would be portrayed as a bimbo, right? At least at the time. Or at least similarly to Donna Rice was one of, she actually like Googled her and there's a Daily Beast article that says that Donna Rice was said, my heart really goes out to Monica Lewinsky. Oh, um, Donna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. So I was like under 10 years old when this was happening, but I just, when she kind of reappeared on Twitter, I mean, not that she hasn't been living her life the entire time, but I was like, oh, I've, I've just never re like gone back and updated information about monica mm-hmm. lewinsky i was thinking about how like just the whole how you're wrong about just reminds me of how i'm happy to go back and update my information but so many people are not <laughs> right it is like so many software updates i feel like a lot of the cultural debate lately it boils down in many ways to people being like you're telling me i have to do a software update I'm not doing that. And it's like, no, you just leave your leave your brain plugged in between two and three in the morning. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, then, and that's yeah. basically what we want to talk to you about is like, wh- why are people refusing to do these software updates? Uh, Especially uh, when the information comes from women 
<laughs> like like us, yeah. like you. <laughs> so so for example, on Twitter, you said, "quote Your regular PSA that vocal fry is code for a woman is talking, and I don't like it." Then. Alec Baldwin built his entire post-2000 career on having vocal fry. You know I'm right. And then finally, if we're going to use the term at all, it needs to be applied to men who do it. And I have never in my life seen this occur. At this point, it seems to me like a component of nearly every human voice in existence, but it's only weaponized or even mentioned re-women. First of all, that's our first episode encapsulated in (laughs) three tweets. (laughs) So like, yes. So... But every time we try and talk about vocal fry, we always get pushback like, mm-hmm. oh, no, it's, it's it's terrible. Oh, no, I also hate it in men. Mm-hmm. Like, they've never brought it up before, but of course they claim mm-hmm. that. So why is it that people are, are ignoring this yeah, software update of, hey, maybe vocal fry isn't what you think it is, and maybe you should just st- stop worrying about it? Well, yeah, and I do have a question about because I saw so much pushback on the Alec Baldwin thing that I was like, does he have vocal fry? Are people this reflexively angry about this? Or do they have a point? Do you think he does? I know no, airline 100%. pilots do. Okay. <laughs> he <Yeah>. does. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what we have here is a characteristic of speech that when men do it i.e jack donaghy i.e your pilot saying we're about to make our final descent into the uh denver metro area and that makes them seem trustworthy and like they have gravitas and just like more masculine and we're into it and when women do it specifically in my understanding and this is a very poppy understanding so i'd love to hear you correct me or bring me the nuance I need. But my understanding is that we started talking about this suddenly like 15 years ago. And it's something that you see a lot in the voices of millennial women and often like to a significant extent. And the argument there and the argument that has been made to me by many emailers, some of them older women, which is to me the most heartbreaking of all, because I don't give a fuck what men think, (laughs) is... When you have vocal fry or when you use the word like, I get feedback about these to equal extents. No one will listen to you if you talk like that. You need to speak better and then people will listen to you. And I'm like, thanks. I think people are listening to me, Janice. (laughs) Um, Right. Yeah, and it really is delivered with like a like a benevolent uh, ants wisdom or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just That's the worst you. part. Yeah, and it's like it's basically like so. There's this unspoken belief being expressed. I think of listen. This is the situation. I had to alter the way I speak and present myself in order for my bosses, men, p- the the people who pull the strings, etc., to take me seriously. Because I needed to prove that I wasn't too much of a woman for people to believe me and listen to me. And you need to do that, too. And, you know, I'm not saying I feel personally oppressed by this. But this is how oppression replicates itself. By basically (laughs) the, like, this essentially, I wouldn't say positively motivated because the outcome and the thinking here is so negative in a general way but it's like out of a sense of like no listen this is the only way things can be i have to tell you what to do that you know that this information 
gets passed on. And so what's so infuriating about it is just like, it's a total tautology. It's like, why does speaking with vocal fry or saying like or using uptalk make you sound unintelligent and uneducated and unbelievable and annoying? Well, it's because that's how girls talk and girls are annoying and uneducated and unintelligent. We shouldn't listen to them. Right. Right. It's a trap. Right. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that originally, the very first time that anyone ever talked about what is called vocal fry, but linguists call creek, was in the 30s. It was noted of upper class British men. It's like this signifier of high status. That's what that was what, what it was written about for first. So then, you know, fast forward to around 2011, this study came out where they studied the voices of college-aged women and college-aged men, but they didn't use any of the data from the men. They only looked at the women's data and said, hey, look, they're using vocal fry. That study started this whole thing. People started to panic. Oh, no, women are using vocal fry. So were the men. But no one was picking up on it or caring. And so it just became this weird moral panic. We've got it. We've yeah. got to stop the young women from using this, even though men were using it. Older men, young, older women, too. Yes, I would say millennial women use it quantitatively more. But like, that's not a, an on off switch. And people are still using it across the board, as you said. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. It's not, a, it's actually not a feature, a particularly strong feature of women's voices. It's a little bit stronger in younger women's than younger men's, but not that much. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we're picking up on it, it's only because we're women <laughs> that, we're, that we're even noticing it. Right. And I actually just read a study that was came out in 2020 that did a like a literature review of all the studies that say like we're going to look at varieties of English and see who really uses vocal fry more and they could only find 10 studies that met their criteria so people aren't even looking at this we don't even have data that is saying that women are using it more like we have sociolinguists and linguists have some idea of like thinking about group effects so millennial women fitting in with other millennial women all this stuff like you know they're probably using it a little bit more you know like there are things that could affect this but yeah we don't even have the research that's that's been done that's saying that women are using this more wow and yet that's what we did we just are like ah the women are doing something yeah right as if to like blame us for like you know unequal pay (laughs) And like, you know, salary disparities are like, we need to really figure out why women are getting paid less. And it's probably vocal yeah, fry. We would pay you the same amount if you weren't so annoying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. We, also ha- we also have an episode about like when we talked to Dr. And Alex Darcy about it. And she sent this whole huge book on it. 800 years of like. <laughs> and she does show that men and women use like differently. So there yeah. are some uses of like that on- that basically only women use. And so there is a difference. We can actually, in this case, say... That's so Look, interesting. women are using like differently. What are the likes that only women use? I think it's the... Is it the quotative or... No, it's not the quotative. I'm going to have to look this up. <laughs> but it's so cool. Like, you think about light, mm-hmm. and I'm like, why would people be so dickish about it when it's such a cool word? Yes. Like, look all... 
Look at all the things it's doing. I know. Yeah, it does a bunch of things. It's like this, the duct tape of speech. You know, it's a word that can have, I mean, I'm sure you have like actual numbers on this, but I feel like it has about 10 uses of the word like. So wow. the one that women tend to use more than men mm-hmm. is whenever I talk to her, you know, like I get nervous. Hmm. Those kind of cases, mm-hmm. which is called a discourse marker, but like, eh, what does discourse that mean? Discourse <laughs> marker. I love that. That sounds like a beer. <laughs> the new Ooh. IPA, yeah. the sweeping oh. the nation discourse <laughs> marker. <laughs> but then the the one that men use slightly more than women is the what's called the discourse particle. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. It was like boots we wore. Huh. All so, right. <laughs> Yeah. Discourse particle is uh, that's an oatmeal <laughs> stout, of course. It's funny you say that because <laughs> there's actually a brewery in Denver called Rural Brewery, mm. and they have a linguistics. Oh my icon. god! Oh, yeah, that's or great. something called linguistics. Nice. Linguists yeah. need an yeah. IPA. They're thinking hard. They need to cool down their hot brains. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. We really do. My brain is so hot. Thank you for <laughs> noticing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the, so w- women's use of like gets picked on. Men's use of like doesn't get picked on as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is that? What is this all coming down to? It's pure sexism. Sexism has nothing to do with anything you know, real in the world, like you were saying. Like it's a tautology, and like these women who are trying to give you th- this benevolent advice, like they're like, oh, it's just the way the world is, and you got to work with it. In some in some ways, I can sort of understand it, especially if they're like boomer women, like when they were. Coming up, like, holy shit, the sexism right, they yeah. had to de- deal with was beyond. But I also still don't understand it because, like, okay, but you don't have to accept it anymore. <laughs> yeah. We can we can try right. harder for, for a better thing where maybe we just stop paying attention to the way that women talk. We just – it's not allowed – Yeah. Stop it. Stop it. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, I think anytime you're finding reasons to disqualify what somebody is saying, because you're like, ah, I don't like the way they talk. It makes me think they're stupid. It's like, okay, maybe that's about you. And you need to think about that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, do you feel like this? I mean, because like you said, you're getting these emails. Do you think that this is a particular thing that people don't want to let go of? Or uh, update their information on. I mean, I think that vocal fry functions effectively like a speeding ticket, where it's like almost literally everyone does that. So it's kind of nice when you want to be like, ah, I don't like listening to you because of this thing you do that everyone else does. (laughs) And it's a way of just being like, because I've gotten that kind of negative review a lot too. And I get that there are some people who just like, genuinely can't handle certain aspects of speech so like those people exist but not in the numbers i'm seeing and and what i what i tend to see is like ah i can't stand listening to your show because your voice has vocal fry and it's so grating and it's like i feel like my voice is like equally grating to anyone else's voice Like, maybe, I don't know. It's hard to say. But I think the point is that most people involve some amount of vocal fry. And then, of course, also for women, there's a damned if you do, damned if you don't component. Because I think, you know, anecdotally, I suspect a lot of women 
maybe lean on it more than is natural to them because they have been trained to keep their voice in a lower register because they've been told that no one wants to hear them talk in their annoying high voice, which I have certainly gotten that feedback as well. So, (laughs) hmm. Right. Exactly. It is. It is exactly that. The... We're told to not use not use baby talk, but we also can't use focal fry. There's like this tiny band in the middle, which might be acceptable, but how can you actually get there? You know, I actually, a couple of years ago, tried to find examples from pop culture of women not using vocal fry. Hmm. And it took me, I mean, it wasn't like completely systematic, but it took me until cheers. Hmm. Diane does mm. not seem to have any vocal fry. And Diane speaks like a theatrical actress right. all the no time. One, no one talks like her. Yeah. And like like the other the other female characters on the show did. Yeah, because Carla doesn't have time to avoid vocal fry all day long. <laughs> she has six kids right. or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> and Rebecca, I mean, my look at Rebecca, my God. <laughs> I feel like a broken record when I bring up Ira Glass. Uh-huh. But he even, like, said that he doesn't get the emails yeah. that, you know, that you get or, you know. Carrie and I have been kind of exempt from this because our show is called Local Fries and we've said, like, don't be a fucking asshole about this mm-hmm. thing. Other than that, I know every single woman that's a podcast host has dealt with this. And it's like, and if it's not vocal fry, it's something else. And I feel like there's just always going to be some contingent of people being like, ah, I can't stand your voice. I cannot physically listen to your show. I think this is also a symptom of people not feeling comfortable just saying they don't like something. Like nobody wants to say like, I don't enjoy Iron Man. They have to be like, the Marvel movies are destroying cinema. And it's like, okay, whatever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's like, it's not just I don't like your show. Which is fine. Like, I don't want to make a show everyone likes. That would be Boring. impossible. And the closer you got to yeah. it, the worse it would be. But also, it's really funny to me that people feel the need to be like, my body rejected your show. Yeah. This is what I don't understand. Like, I, right. there are voices I do not like to listen to, and I won't listen to those podcasts. But I don't tell them that. Yes. Like, why Why? Why right. do you feel like they, that you need to know, have this information that I cannot listen to your voice? It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go listen to something else. It's so <laughs> true. Yeah. And it's just like if I eat something that I hate, I don't like call the manufacturer. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, if there was something yes. in the bag that was dangerous, that'd be the only way that I would eat yeah. it remotely think about doing it but if i'm like this is too salty i'm you know i'm not like your chips are so dangerously salty that my body couldn't stand having them inside of it right (laughs) yes it triggered a true visceral reaction and i just need you to know that i need that from you i mean yeah just Speaking about it in these terms, I grew up with a dad who was just constantly finding things about my voice to explain why he was physically incapable of listening to me say anything. So I do take this personally because this is not just something that happens in the public sphere or in a person's relationship with their audience. This is something that I know from personal experiences used to silence girls and women and anybody with a voice who people deem unlistenable to for whatever reason they feel like that this is something that happens in the personal sphere as well 
Yes. And that's way more toxic. Yeah, for sure. The public stuff kind of gives permission to people to do it in their private lives as well. So yeah, because then you can be like, you're never going to be a weather person with that voice. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and I was told in my PhD program that if I didn't get rid of my vocal fry, I was going to be taken seriously at conferences (sighs) or talk during talks. Yeah. Yeah. And this is from a linguist who really should have known better. So it's like, you really should have known better. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about all of this, that's like at work, do you feel that your expertise has been ignored in some way? And can you like untangle it from people saying things like, I can't listen to you? I'm very entitled about my work. So I feel like if people don't get it, my attitude is just like, okay, fuck off, go do something you enjoy. Uh, when I was in academia, I feel like this was my first exposure to this world, which I think was very helpful because that is effectively very similar. I was in English departments and consistently was aware of the fact that my, you know, the, the men in my cohort felt their opinions to be somehow intrinsically more serious than whatever women were talking about not all the men not even necessarily most of them but like enough Enough men like that that it was a real pattern and also you know why looking back at my mentors I only worked closely uh with women I never had a male professor who I I worked closely with or who mentored me really and it wasn't I wasn't aggressively choosing that for myself it was just what made sense and that was also a case of really thoroughly advised and appreciated as serious by the mentors that I had, which I think who always wanted to talk about pop culture and tabloids and scandals of the 90s and to connect that to like captivity narratives or the Declaration of Independence. And I consistently had professors who were like, yes, of course, reality TV is like the Declaration of Independence. But now tell me why in a seminar paper. I think people maybe from outside imagine that academia is sort of more advanced with regards to like (laughs) passive aggressiveness and gender. But I remember my experience of men and humanities academia being that they were like still very stressed by the idea that all these women had all these opinions. And (laughs) I think we're finding ways to kind of consistently just deny that they were serious enough to like admit into the conversation in their heads. Yeah, I agree. And I'm thinking about how like any sort of reference to pop culture is somehow then like made like a woman's topic yeah. as if it's not serious. Yeah. It's like so infuriating when pop culture is a reflection of everything that is going on in our society. Yes. <laughs> and it's really playing out right now. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, always. Right. I mean, look at what happened to people who didn't think it was important to study reality TV. We just had a reality TV presidency and people were caught by surprise because they were like, nothing so unserious could possibly take place. Not in the White House. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, that reminds me, Tila Tequila. Do you remember Tila Tequila and how she became a Nazi? She sure did. It's like, right? It's like, why are we surprised by this? This is just a, a another person in our country. Like, of course, this could happen. Of course, she could have, you know, Nazi sympathy. It's like, yeah, look at, our country. Look at how many Nazis there are. It's a numbers game. But it's like, you have this many Nazis <laughs> yeah, and this many right. reality TV stars. There's going to be some overlap. <laughs> there is. <laughs> there is. <laughs> it's true. 
And then we call it guilty pleasure, right? Or some people do. I've stopped using that. Yeah, it's weird language. Yeah, I know. I never watched The Apprentice. And, you know, in retrospect, I kind of wish I had so that I could actually understand what the appeal of Trump was. Because hmm. I still hmm. I still don't get it. Like, his want to talk voices that annoy me. Mm-hmm. His, his is like like stabbing me in the eardrum. Like, I but like ornately with different little stabby tools, because like <laughs> yes. I effectively stopped listening to NPR during his presidency because I was like, they're gonna have to play Me him too. talking like about every twenty minutes, mm-hmm. and I just don't want him in my kitchen. Like that's how he wins. Yeah, that's true. No, absolutely, I'm right there with you. I stopped listening to NPR like on my drive. It's like he's the president. They're gonna have to play clips of what yeah. he said. I can't do it. It's interesting that, like, there's lots of things that people made fun of him for, but his voice was not one of them. That is funny, because his voice is, like... Really strange. It's really strange. I always really enjoyed and continue to enjoy Seth Meyers' impression of Trump. But it doesn't really sound like Trump. It's more like a sort of, like, adult Cartman. (laughs) Which is, like, close, but doesn't get the full nuance in. (laughs) Oh my god, that's a real... You know, people probably don't tell you this enough just because you should hear it every second. You're really good at metaphor. <laughs> Thank you. This is what I was known for in grad school. It was like, oh, Sarah's doing a metaphor again. Here's the wind up and the pitch and the second pitch. <laughs> but, you know, with Seth Meyers' impression, too, he does talk about how Trump often speaks very loudly. The other thing that the left, left-leaning people would make fun of with Trump is that oh, he doesn't even speak English properly. Hmm. And we've talked about this on the show that that I really, I really hate when people say that because who that ends up hurting are people that are, you know, people like my dad who speak Spanish first and foremost, Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, like people that have an accent that we, that people have decided is not as, talking about like when women are said to be less competent with vocal fry people with spanish influenced english are said to be less competent and you know salary and wages also reflect that so Mm -hmm. like these kind of things are playing out so when people say trump doesn't speak english properly that kind of message hurts everyone else and not him yeah i mean really like anything about his appearance is sort of or the just anything about sort of the way you experience him physically kind of distracts from the main criticism, which is that he's a fascist with no conscience and no understanding of the sanctity of human life, I would say. That's like the main thing. Yeah, we should just call him a fascist every day. Yeah, that's I mean, like, who cares if he's orange? Many wonderful people are orange, but (laughs) he's a fascist. That's what he has going for him. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that you like to talk about is is moral panics, including the satanic panic. I do. And so I assume that you think that we're going through a moral panic right now. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. So so you can sort of see the signs of, of them. Maybe you can talk a little bit about like what moral panic is we're going through right now, what the signs are. And then and then I'm going to ask you, like, if that's frustrating that <laughs> you can see it coming and it's like not, yeah. not stopping it. <laughs> well, I mean, I... In a way, but also I think that we're all kind of suffering from the feeling at this point that we have to consume all of the news. And then it's just like, oh my fuck, oh my god, there's like 85 disasters 
It's a very low estimate. There's 85 gigantic disasters happening in this country at any given second. And which do I focus on? Which do I like, you know, at this point, you could throw all of your energy into trying to change gun laws or into trying to make abortion accessible. And you can just use all of your life force on that and, you know, be totally justified. Or you could like somehow, somehow find a way to watch Ted Lasso and make biscuits and gravy and also care about stuff, but like not, but this thing where it's like, Oh my God, this thing is happening. It's so obvious. How can we stop it? It's like, yeah, there's a lot of obvious disasters happening all around. And we just, at this point, apparently, and this is one of the functions of having media the way that we do. We have to learn how to take in information, but also not feel obligated to take in all the information available to us because we don't, like, there was a time when you could actually do that, which is insane. Like, in my mother's lifetime, in many people's lifetime, there were three channels that anyone could get or four once there was PBS and you could watch all the news on all the channels. Like recently you could do that. And now you really can't. And a lot of the news is lying. And I mean, so speaking of moral panics, you know, I, QAnon, I think is basically the, the dragon of the satanic panic that just took a tiny little snooze, like Pennywise he was just like, I'm going to go in my lair and have a little disco nap, and then I'm going to wake up around 2016, and I'm going to slither out and start biting off kids' arms. And so, yeah, it's just like, yeah, I, I saw that. A lot of people saw that. A lot of people understood way before me that it never really went away. It was just napping. And, I, you know, I think looking at especially... Like, not just QAnon, but now the moral panic. And, and panic doesn't quite describe this because this is so systematic and so calculated. But the moral panic and the war on queer people and trans people and trans kids uh, in America, that is something that I think is adopting the, the mantle of fighting Satan, just because that's always a good one. It always works, you know, and it's just about who you want to take down at that time. I've always struggled with the understanding, like, how do people get sucked into satanic panic in particular? Because I just, I, I guess, because I was n never brought up with a religion, I just don't have an understanding of what Satan even is, you know, like, it just doesn't fit into my worldview. Mm -hmm. And so always list like, what? How are these people? Really? I mean, I don't, I, I mean, believe I in God, so why would I believe in Satan? No, of course. <laughs> but no, it's just like, what about like Dante's Inferno? Oh, like, I did you have like some blurry... what, what the thing is <laughs> okay, okay. in literature or whatever, but like okay. to actually believe that that thing exists and is actually even maybe eviler than Dante's Inferno? I don't know. Anyway, so I just always get it. Com I, I yeah. just, I'm like, how do people slide into this? But I understand there's like, you know, a, a belief system, this huge belief system that goes along with it. But anyway, I. But yeah, so like the trans panic, you're right. It's like not even a panic. It is also like it's just very calculated. So does that mean that you think that like the regular satanic panic was not calculated? It was it was like real, like people really believed? Well, yeah, I mean, the word Ooh. panic at least suggests some of like a, a lack of calculation on most people's parts, which so it's just it's there in the language, I think. But yeah, I mean, I do... It, well, it's hard to say because these are both things that also are part of the sort of sustained Christian culture war in America. 
And what's funny to me, too, is that we have this imaginary conspiracy that uh, so much time and energy and Riley imprisoned so many people. Mm-hmm. And yet there was like a real like, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? There was there was a real kind of just operating in plain sight, unashamed of itself conspiracy happening sort of in the fundamentalist movement in America that was basically like, okay, we're going to have these kids in the eighties. We're going to homeschool them. This is going to be the first homeschool generation. We're going to raise them in our own culture. We're going to make our own colleges so that they can become lawyers and they can change the laws. We're going to get our guys into the white house. We're going to amass financial resources and make our kids really smart and send them off to help make the nation more Christian, we can see that they have been very successful yes. <laughs> in doing that. And all the time that this was happening, they were like, and you know who we're fighting? Satan himself. Because when these women, the kind of originary theory of the early 80s was like, well, these women are going into the workplace in droves, they're putting their children in daycare centers. And did you know that Satanists have infiltrated daycare centers across the nation because it behooves them to not just to molest your children, but to ritually abuse them for Satan and to make them take part in elaborate satanic ritual and sacrifice animals and sacrifice babies. And all this is happening because women are going back to work. (laughs) Right. Well, this reminds me of the West Memphis three, which Mm -hmm. is just in the news again, because the, judge denied like retesting evidence oh god but i actually had never seen the documentary paradise lost about this until like a couple weeks ago yeah because i was inspired by stranger things Mm. (laughs) because they were saying like uh this new character eddie munson and the storyline of this hellfire group who plays dungeons and dragons which is actually part of the satanic panic Mm -hmm. because there were people saying like dungeons and dragons is like a gateway to you know like mm-hmm. so this is in stranger things i was like okay i finally need to watch paradise lost and damien eccles and mm-hmm. this whole thing and i was just taken back by i guess it was with the stepfather of one of the kids that was murdered how he talked about like <laughs> fire and brimstone mm-hmm. and i just like really wondered this ha- like this is fake right this is beyond anything i can comprehend as a, a person thinking these things but it was right at the time that it would make sense just like what what was fake oh just the way he talked about like the boy the west Memphis three and kind of how they're satan's arms or whatever you know doing the work of satan i mean what i always remember about that documentary is the part where the prosecutor points at damien eccles and says there is not a soul in that boy's body yeah i remember watching that when i was like 23 24 And just thinking, like, wait, are you allowed to say that? Like, can you say that in a trial? Because obviously that's not, it's not about evidence. It's not about the law. It's about, like, can you accuse the defendant of having no soul? And which is a reasonable thing to be amazed by. But also, it's like, God, Sarah, you lived in this country for long enough. You should probably (laughs) know that that's, like, most of what happens in trials. It is. Yeah. Well, in other language, like, you know, judge saying, like, you're being saved from the death penalty, but God God will take care of you in the end. Or something like all this yeah. very religious language by the judges. It's like, let's not pass the buck. Let's right. let's not make everything God's job. God is, <laughs> right. God is busy. God is like depresso about 
the coral reefs. We have to do some stuff ourselves right now. <laughs> I've been thinking on this topic about like how women are ignored and their expertise is ignored. I mean, I always think about Rebecca Solnit's Men Explain Things to Me and mm. the idea of mm-hmm. mansplaining. So mm. are there particular any particularly egregious instances of mansplaining that have happened to you? I haven't really gotten out of the house much in the past couple of <laughs> years. So yeah. I guess think of that as kind of my first experiences with men. Someone I was talking to yesterday said something amazing about this that comes to mind. I was talking to Laura Bazelon, who's a writer and lawyer, and she said, men think that it's a zero-sum game and we're the zero. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. <laughs> That's really... That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never quite thought about it like that, but... Yeah. And that's, that's what exactly I think. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. And, and, you know, and, I, and if we're going to get down to, like, okay, why is that going on? Or if people are like, why would that be? Like, explain that to me. What's the motivation there? And I think, you know, the motivation is that, like, we live in a culture that from birth, in many instances, and in, maybe it's overt, maybe it's insidious, maybe there's just a little bit of it, maybe it's a huge presence in your coming of age. But in this culture, I think it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to avoid the concept that women are intrinsically lesser than men. And that for a woman to be able to do something means that it's embarrassing for a man to not be able to do it better, unless it's something stupid, like baking, but not cooking, which men invented in 1975. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because, you know, Guy Fieri does it. So So there you go. Men do it. This This is a man's thing. Yeah, I mean, it was a man's thing before Guy Fieri, because, like, all the famous French chefs. No, oh, yeah. Dudes. Yeah. Ugh. I can't even imagine trying to be a chef. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, my God, you're just, like, you're, yes, you're being condescended to, and you're surrounded by sharp knives. That It's just, it's like, I can't believe there isn't more crime in there. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like I would have, like, hurt somebody if, it, if I'd been in that <laughs> <laughs> not, not a violent person, but that yeah, just, yeah, but, you know, bad, bad situation. Long hours, a certain <laughs> yeah. kind of worrying, low grade condescension that goes on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, it would it would kill me. What do you find most frustrating about being a woman in podcasting? <laughs> <laughs> I I really love it. I guess that that maybe there is a greater expectation of parasociality for women or a greater quantity of sort of randos on social media who feel the need to tell you how to do your job. But I have been trying to like reduce my exposure to that noise because I think at this point, like the same with feeling the need to consume all the news and that being physically impossible. Like many of us like are being offered if we choose to take it like more feedback about ourselves than we could possibly even read or make sense of or process. And it like falls to us at this point to be like, I know that's available to me, but I'm choosing to limit what I'm trying to take in, which is hard to do. I still feel like if technology allows it, I should do it. But in terms of actually making the show and working with guests, the the team that I work with and the everydayness of it 
yeah, there's no disadvantages. I'll also say that like when I was doing freelance journalism and I was interviewing people, I think that like a lot of interview subjects, if they're talking to a woman, they just, they let their guard down in a way that I imagine they don't with other men. And I'm talking about male subjects, obviously. And I think their presumption is like, unless this person is like interrupting me and vocally disagreeing with me, I think she must be like kind of on board for what I'm saying. And I'm just going to keep saying weirder and weirder stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm sure you're right about that. I mean, I'm I'm not a journalist, so I've never really encountered it, but I believe it. (laughs) I can just imagine someone pulling out stuff from Musk. (laughs) Yeah, they're not competing for the floor in the same way if it were a man that they're talking to, because they're like, well, I can just keep going, probably Mm -hmm. thinking they don't have to keep the floor the same way. So or fight for, you know, to speak. And so they just keep going. Right. <laughs> right. I, I do have a theory that like women tend to be more succinct answerers because we're conscious of the fact that everyone wants to interrupt us. And it's like, okay, yeah. I'm just real quick there. I'm just going to make my point. Yeah. I, another thing I want to say too, is that I think I'm able to give that answer because I work for myself, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm the boss. I have a producer who I love, Carolyn Kendrick, and we make mutual decisions about stuff. And I you know, work with my team about it. But at the end of the day, like if I think something is interesting and I'm passionate about something and it's important to me to talk about it, we're going to talk about it. And that is at the end of many, many years of having to try and pitch stories to various publications, you know, that had infrastructures where in many areas men were turning the key or that were kind of doing their work with the idea of like, this is our audience, we have to, you know, there's a certain kind of parameter for what makes an interesting story. And that was an area where I had such a wealth of stories that I wanted to talk about when we started doing You're Wrong About, because I was like, nobody wants to let me write anything about how we might have been horrible to Amy Fisher 20 years ago, because the question was always like, but is there like new information about Amy Fisher? Can we talk to her? Like, I was like, no, I just think it's like worth talking about in sort of general format, this idea of like, boy, like, what could we revisit where we did a terrible job specifically as media? And that was always like, clearly, that's interesting to people. But the question of like, who do we imagine it to be interesting to is operating at a lot of places that you might try to work as somebody who's doing this kind of thinking. And so the fact that I get to decide what's interesting enough and is, and I'm not catering to somebody who thinks that frivolous, girly topics are not worth expending this kind of effort on, like, that's what allows me to give that answer. Yeah, Yeah, well, I'm thinking about how I said earlier that I was able to, like, update my information on Monica Lewinsky, but it's like, does there have to be, like, some, like, breaking news about Monica Lewinsky for us to just kind of, like, (laughs) you know, go think about how right. we treated her and how bad it like how badly we treated her um or yeah. how we're ba- how badly we're treating amber heard right now right. right yeah absolutely the volcano needs another body but this that like infuriates me just watching people tear yeah. her apart makes me so angry and i'm like i thought we were better than this we're right. not yeah. obviously we're not i mean related because misogyny how are you doing with the whole room thing yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I what I'm saying to myself that 
This is not a sprint. This is an ultra marathon, and it's already been going on since 1992. That's kind of my date because that's when uh, KC happened. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like a vast well of sadness that I have not let in yet because we're having this conversation the day after. And I think that there's a certain amount of processing that we're all going to do in our own way if this matters to us. And if it doesn't matter to you, then like, I assume you're a house cat who knows what I'm (laughs) saying. But yeah, I'm horrified and furious. And yeah, connecting this to the misogyny trend of this whole conversation and so many conversations that you have and that I have on the shows that we do. I mean, yeah, it's just proof that like effectively women don't exist. Like, because this idea of like, it's proof of just, you're not a person. You're either someone who could become pregnant, someone who will be able to become pregnant someday someone who is capable of becoming pregnant, someone who is pregnant, or someone who was pregnant once, you know, and then I guess that leaves out any other form of femininity, which I guess think hasn't been considered by the people making these roles. You're just sort of a space to be developed upon by like the, you know, the baby production arm. And yeah, it's, it's just to me, it's the most obvious and straightforward way to harm people, kill people, deprive them of human rights. It's, I know that we have been like systematically working toward this point for so long. And yet it's still like, there's a part of me that's like, be calm. Like, just keep like, we will keep figuring this out. Like, people are gonna, you know, rise up and do good work all over the country. And we're at the start of a long fight. And we need to conserve energy and like, be calm and keep figuring it out and keep being strategic. And the other part of me is like, yeah, that's true. But also like, this is a good moment to scream into the void. Oh, just for like a, a minute. And, you know, just to take a minute when we need to, because this is like, to, I don't know, to not recognize just the overt, honestly, it's an act of war. Um, and it doesn't matter that it, that it's legal. That's what it is. This is definitely one of those moments where a mountaintop would be nice to shout off of. (laughs) Or just like flip over a laundry basket and stand on that if mountains aren't available. Yeah, exactly. Something. As I was saying off off mic, you know, I'm I'm living in Canada, so it doesn't directly affect me yet. But of course, I think it's just, you know, a part of a long war that's going to spread. I surprised myself um, as I was going to work. I actually cried. I didn't expect that because I'm like, well, I'm not living in the States anymore. Surely it's not going to affect me as much. But no, it really it really did. It's, it's horrifying. It's reducing us to, yeah, baby makers, which is <laughs> not my thing. I don't, I never been my thing. <laughs> and even with pe- women who want to have children, people who want to have children don't necessarily <laughs> want to do, be only known for that. Like they have other identities talking about expertise like it could be men that are saying these things but it doesn't matter because changing how you feel about this you know like giving up on your misogyny (laughs) and i think that's a more powerful force than listening to other men i think it's a lot more powerful than we've even realized until the last few years at least me i i'm a lot more powerful than even i realized until a few years ago yeah yeah i think this will be called the a lot to process era 
in the history books. And it's just like, once there was a time when shit just did not stop happening and nobody got a break, you would sit down to have a cup of tea and a cookie and then you would look up and realize that the moon was on fire. And you're like, how did that happen? Yep. This has ended very heavy. What is like a a dream a dream topic or something uh, for you wrong about? Maybe even one that's impossible. Hmm. I don't even know how that would be, but that's a good question. <laughs> hmm. This is not a, not exactly a you're wrong about topic, but that's why it makes it appealing. It's like something that doesn't quite work practically as a show idea, but is maybe something I have become enamored with the I hate to cook book. Do you know this? book it came out in no, 1961 no. maybe ni- 1960 and it's by peg bracken who actually worked in advertising here in portland with homer graining matt graining's father but she also was a mother and a wife and so she had to cook for her family and so she and her friends they pooled their recipes that they used that many of which involved canned condensed soup and made the I Hate to Cookbook, which are all things that you can make like fairly easily and aren't super involved and are just like recipes that you can do if you just have to feed your family three times a day forever and ever. And <laughs> it's, it's funny and it's wonderful and it's got kind of insight into what the world was like in that moment. And I've I love Julia Child with all my heart, but I've become increasingly annoyed with the sort of like binary we've seen in Julia Child related media of like before Julia Child taught American women how to cook, nobody knew how to do anything at all. And we all just sat down and <laughs> ate soap sandwiches, one soap between two sponges. That's what we did. And it's like, no, people like processed food. We've taken this too far in many ways, for sure. But like, it exists partly because people are overworked and tired and women have to do everything and like i think there's too much maligning of condensed soup as an ingredient you know like you you don't have to have it if you don't want it well i actually think that you could do an episode on that okay (laughs) yeah i guess i would want to like make some of the recipes and then i could yeah i have bought some condensed soup for the purpose of making them so i'm excited about that oh yeah yeah i think you should do it all right Definitely. Good. I'm this yeah. is good. This is nice. I'm glad this is interesting to you guys. Oh, well, yeah. I, absolutely. I like, can't wait to listen to your um, I Hate to Cook book episode. Yay. Yeah, me too. Well, yeah. Great. This is a great vote of confidence. Yeah. And this, this was so fun. I know that this we, was really we a lot of fun. Like, the, the muck, but like it's, it's, good to, it's good to do that every so often if you can talk to funny people while doing it. Especially. Yeah, exactly. thank you. Yes, yeah, thank you thank for you. being like, I feel like our show would be so depressing if it weren't for like, talking to really interesting and funny people. And, and yeah, yeah. It, can, it can get <laughs> yeah. kind of depressing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our <laughs> intros are usually just the two of us talking about some horrible thing about language. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's good to have the guests talk about more fun things, even if it's also yeah. hard. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the yeah. language stuff is fascinating. And just like, yeah i loved this this was and i'm so happy that you're doing the show thank you well and we are so happy that you're doing your shows yes yeah yeah i've I've been listening to you wrong about for i don't know a long time before the pandemic anyways oh yeah (laughs) that's a big that's like listening to the shins before garden estate (laughs) exactly (laughs) i'm such a hipster yeah 
Anyway, we always leave our listeners with one final message. Don't be an asshole. (laughs) The Vocal Fries podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen, for Halftone Audio. Theme music by Nick Granham. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Vocal Fries Pod. You can email us at vocalfriespod at gmail.com, and our website is vocalfriespod.com. 